Well, hello, and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. I'm your host, Laura Camacho, and here we have conversations with very interesting people about how to have better conversations and conversations that help you achieve your goals. And today we have a super interesting guest. Her name is Dr. Valerie Fridlin. She is a professor at the University of Nevada at Reno. But listen to this. She's a sociolinguist, like instead of sociologist, a sociolinguist. So that means her area of research is about the relationship between language and society. But it gets better. So this woman, and I can't wait to find out what she's going to say, but she argues that using bad English is a good thing. So I'm kind of have problems with that at this point, but maybe she'll change my mind. And she has a book out that's called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. So you, if you, that topic interests you and you like this interview, you can go look out her book. It's just fresh off the press. So without further ado, I'm going to bring you Dr. Valerie Fridlin. So Valerie, I am excited to have you on our show. I appreciate your taking time and coming in from Reno, right? Reno, Nevada. Uh, is that right? It is. Well, I will say, though, just so that Nevadans love you, it's actually Nevada. Oh, If Nevada. you live in Nevada, you have to learn to say Nevada. Yes. So I just thought I should clarify so you don't get hate emails. <laughs> okay. And you know, I have a son-in-law who is from Nevada. <laughs> from uh, His father was the top HR guy at Caesars Palace for a long time, but he's a Southern boy who Moved out there and he's moved back, but he also told me that and silly me, I forgot. So welcome and we're glad to have you. I have so many questions. I've already teed this up by telling my audience that, I don't know, I'm very skeptical about you telling me that bad English is good. So I can't <laughs> wait to hear what you have to say about that. But I want to know, first of all, how the heck did someone decide that, oh, I'm going to be a sociolinguist when I grow up? What is that? I uh, know it's a weird field in the sense that it's one that no one has heard of until you meet someone who does it. And I certainly did not think, you know, in my 10 year old brain, like when I grow up, that's what I want to be is, oh, my God, a sociolinguist. In fact, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever heard of one. And if I had told myself that I probably would have cried at that age. But it's really a funny story. I, both my parents are French speaking natively. And so, and I grew up in the South in, a, in, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, which at the time was not very cosmopolitan. It's a much, much different place today. I had a great time growing up there, but I will say that my family was treated as somewhat exotic because they were not native speakers and they were different. And so I think a lot of times we got invited to parties because they were showing off the shiny French people <laughs> and actually Belgian, Belgian. So I noticed very early on how people reacted to differences in language. And of course, in my parents' case, it was their accents. But in my case, I was a native speaker of English. I was born in the United States. But I had picked up as a small child some aspects of my parents' accents because the first influence, and parents I know are grateful to hear this, at least they have some influence on their kids. <laughs> their first, your first influence is your parents or your caregiver, whoever you spend most time with as a baby, 
They establish for you what's called your phoneme inventory, which is a fancy word to say they help you establish what the sounds of your language will be going forward. Of course, we change a lot once we hit school and once we realize our parents are not cool at all and that friends are way, way cooler. But we have a short period where parents are sort of the bomb, let's say, linguistically. I had that period. And when I went to kindergarten or first grade, I can't remember exactly what year it was, but early on. I was talking to friends and I think I was describing this new teddy bear I had gotten that was really, really big. Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those gigantic teddy bears. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Five-year-old, that is the best thing ever. So I was talking about this new teddy bear I'd gotten for my birthday or Christmas or whatever it was. And I described it as huge. (laughs) Because my parents, as sprunch speakers, didn't have H's. And it didn't ever occur to me. I didn't have H's. You know, it just (laughs) didn't occur to me. And boy, I mean, it was like people's heads spun around when I said that. It was not just that they noticed it was different. It was that they instantly jumped on it and sort of ridiculed me for being different. And it was a painful experience, but it also was a really good life lesson that language matters. And it matters extremely, not just in terms of intelligibility and be able to talk to people, but it matters a lot as a social indicator of who you are, where you come from your social identity in other ways. And instead of just being, oh, look, you said that in a different way, it's probably because your parents are different. The kids were like, ew, you're different. It was really this sort of watershed moment for me, I think, looking back that made me realize that language was powerful and impactful and socially really important. And of course, that still didn't make me think I want to be a sociolinguist. I didn't even know how to say that word. Still have problems saying it sometimes today. (laughs) But when I went away to college and I took a linguistics course as part of my major, Mm -hmm. it kind of opened my eyes to why that had happened. And I could understand it, not just from the perspective of my feelings being hurt by the way people reacted to it, but the science behind it. And I could also understand the patterns behind the reasons I said things I did, and the reason my parents said things they do. And so all of a sudden it was like, holy crap, this is this revolutionary way of thinking about language that's very scientific. It's very empirical and no one talks about it. You know, you don't learn this stuff. You learn English, which is an incredibly socially prescriptive view of language. It's one set of people's beliefs about language, but it's not scientifically based and we never hear about linguistics. So Sociolinguistics is a specialty that looks at the theories of language, the cognition behind language, the articulation of language, so all those parts of the mouth and the brain that are involved in language, but it looks at it from the perspective of how it inhabits social identity and social structure and cultural moments Mm -hmm. to make language change over time. So it's sort of this really lovely place between looking at language as a theoretical linguist who studies sort of cognition and articulation and looking at language as a psychologist or a sociologist that studies language and culture. Yes. Society. And it combines those two to understand why we say the things we say, why they're powerful and purposeful, and why we don't like them. So it was a fun choice. Yes. I love that. I think that's so interesting. And I know we have a lot of non native English speakers in our audience. We also have a lot of Southerners, as I'm one. And I mean, even as you're a Southerner, also, you probably had that experience. I remember going away to summer camp for the first time and people just, having a heyday with my accent, which you don't hear anymore for that reason, (laughs) because, you know, Southerners are dumb and have that act. I mean, back in the day, that was, you know, the gospel truth. And so 
I auto corrected for my accent. And I can tell you, my stepdaughter's mother is French. She, my stepdaughter went to school in Paris and she would consider a Belgian French. If you ask her, she would admit that it's crazy, but that Belgians clearly don't speak French. They speak Belgian or something like that. Or French Canadians don't really speak French properly. But language is a powerful tool, right? And so I want us all to come out with, it's a powerful tool, but its power is not necessarily because you use the semicolon correctly. Absolutely. What you said is a lot of important things. And one thing I think we can step back and notice in all the comments that you made about being a Southerner and trying to have people talk about it and trying to get rid of your Southern accent. And then your daughter-in-law that studied in Paris and sort of poo-poos other types of French. A lot of times we have very negative attitudes towards language difference. And it's really one of the last areas that discrimination is not just okay, but it's welcomed, it's talked about. And what you don't realize is that those are people on the other end of those accents. And they're not dumb, and they're not lesser, and there's nothing bad about them. It's simply your socio-historical beliefs that make you think that way. And if we stop to think, well, would I ridicule someone because of other types of differences I note about them, you know, their weight or their age or their hair color, Would that be acceptable? It really wouldn't. And we would know that that's not acceptable. But language is one of those areas we don't. It's interesting because I, too, had that same reaction going out of the South. You know, I remember when I went away to college, I would say the word that really sticks out to me, and you might have had this experience, is the word lawyer. But as a Southerner, you say liar, right? He was a liar. And my friends would say, he's a liar. Well, kind of. And then I'd say, well, that depends on your perspective. But what I meant to say was actually attorney. So it actually made me stop saying that word and start using attorney. That's true. I did. I do use attorney also. And probably I have blocked that out of my memory cells. But yes, I also use it. Liar, lawyer. Yep, there's all kinds of things going on. And I just want to hit on one more funny note, how it, it can also be a halo effect. I have, have married, been married twice. I love my first husband and my second husband. They're both Latin Americans. And my kids always tell my husband, if you lose that accent, you're in trouble with mom because she's got a thing for those accents. You know, like the fish named Wanda, that was me 100%. In coaching my highly conscientious high performers for whom many English is a second language, I say it's an asset. If you're understood, that's an asset because you're more memorable. You have like double the cultural references to bring in. And it's just a matter of educating and embracing that. But I want to get to a point from your book about you claim that lots of the innovation, shall we say, in English comes from women and children. How does that work? Okay. So interestingly, I love your choice of verb there, you claim, because what we love about language, I think, is how it communicates messages at a meta level as well as at just sort of the informational level. And sometimes we pretend that that's not important, but most of the time that's really what's most important. And so in just sort of doing that verb choice, it's sort of suggesting, okay, I'm skeptical of this. So prove to me. Well, so what's interesting is if we look historically at letters, for example, diaries, plays, things like that from eras like the early modern era when Shakespeare wrote 
those kinds of things. That's our form of evidence for early speech because obviously we didn't have smartphones back then, thank goodness. But we don't have recordings from those periods. But we do have ways of measuring colloquial speech, of looking at sort of more informal speech, casual speech, other than literary texts and court documents, which is another form of ways we can look at the formal language in those and the informal language in things like letters and diaries and plays to get a sense of who was doing what. And even back in the early modern period, what we find is the movement towards many of the modern speech features that we embrace and love today and think of as correct were led in those informal letters, in those diaries, in those plays by women. And that includes things like the movement from using verbs like doth and maketh to does and make. So that S marker that marks third person singular subjects. That was a modern change that now we use that was led by women. It seems to have been a Northern feature, a Northern British English feature. And it probably was brought into the London area dialect by immigrants because there was in that period, there was a huge, massive migration from those outlying areas to London, which had become a cultural and economic center at the time. That probably introduced this feature that was influenced by Old Norse, most likely. And women picked it up because it was informal. It was often probably something that was used to mark intimacy or colloquialness among women. You're tired. You just like, I'm not going to say make it. I'm going to say makes. I'm too tired. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's just way too much work. So we see this uptick in women's letters, particularly of using that feature. Same thing with the shift from using you as a subject pronoun as opposed to ye as a subject pronoun. You know, what happened to ye? We sort of do things like hear ye, hear ye, but actually ye was the subject pronoun. Oh, I didn't know that. You was the object pronoun. So you'd say you, ye, hear <laughs> you, but you wouldn't say you, hear ye. So this switch is very similar to the way we get upset over people saying things like him and I today. Like him and I went to the store. Right. Well, that bothers people, but every single person that that bothers is doing the exact same thing, but they're doing it with you. So your you is an incorrect usage, if you want to put it that way in those terms, of using an object pronoun as subject. But it was so long ago that it happened that you've forgotten all about it. In fact, probably didn't even know. And therefore, it doesn't bother you. We get upset over things that are happening in front of our eyes without realizing we've done the same thing over and over throughout our history in exactly the same way. But you being used as a subject pronoun also led by, yep, women, women, women. Oh, I totally believe you. I mean, I was just playing with you because I think also if the women got it, the children are learning from the women. That's bingo. That's a huge influence on language change over time because even though men and women, especially in that era, had very different life circumstances. So what we find with men at that time is they led in a few changes and those changes tend to be towards more formal usage in learned context. So things that might have taken off of Latin or Greek in that model, in formal written circumstances, because men were the ones that were learned and educated at the time, women were not, even high status women were not. So they led in things like the shift from multiple negation, which was used a lot in older English. So the having two negatives, sort of like French still does, je ne pas pas, je ne parle pas where you have a no and a pa, but English had that too. Well, that actually atrophied in that same period led by men, probably because of influence of other languages like Latin, where two negatives made a positive was where that rule came from. It's been misconstrued. It's actually a fallacy the way we believe it today. But 
that was actually a learned change, and that was led by men at the time. But if we look at sound changes, the earliest study of sound change that was done in a sociolinguistic way where we have records of who was leading it was done in 1905 in a Swiss village of Charme in Switzerland, and they spoke Swiss French. And in this dialect, there were some massive changes to both the vowel and consonant sounds coming in, which are sort of modern today, but at that time were just coming in. And a Swiss linguist by the name of Louis Gauchat was recording it. And he actually says in his write-up, he's like, women opened their arms to every linguistic novelty because he found it was women that were leading the change in that Swiss village as well. Not just any women, but young women in particular. And what we find in modern day studies of sound change, every modern day study of sound change pretty much shows women in that lead in the early stages. So in the very, very early stages of disseminating that change, women seem to be stylistic leaders. And I don't think that will surprise anybody listening to your show, right? No, I think women have always been more practical, but especially back in the day, because they had the survival of the family depended on her being able to get the newest things. Yeah. And so I think that it makes a lot of sense. I'm just, as we say in South Carolina, messing with you. (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting that is not only were they practical, but they were also stylish and fashionable. It does seem that women have always been on the leading edge of things that will promote them in some sort of higher social status. Right. And that is seems to be also true of language. So there's something new coming up and it kind of has this emotion or this sensibility with it that is something you want to emulate and carry forth because it says something about you and this sort of quality that it puts forth. It is women that tend to lead in that. All these things contribute to why women lead in language change. The downside, the negative side of this is, of course, that we notice women leading in change mm-hmm. and we tend to diss them for it. So when we hear women using these things in modern times, so things like vocal fry or high levels of like use are using so a lot, sentence initial so or intensifier so, we notice them because they're new, they're novel, and they tend to be used more by women, not because women are just flighty or vacuous, but because women are leaders in language change. That is why they're using more of it. Not because they're dumb or they're vacuous or they're empty-headed or they have nothing to say or they're uncertain. That's all the reasons we as a society put on women because of their historical circumstances, that we have always treated women's voices as being flighty and uncertain and less visible, desirable, but because women have always led in language change. And so when you're a leader, you get noticed for it. And when you're a leader that has a socio-historical reputation that can be not favorable, then those changes get viewed in a negative light. So it's really all this really interesting socio-historical cultural history that makes us treat those features the way we do. That is just absolutely fascinating. So if any of you feel that you are bothered by your vocal fillers or by saying ums and ahs, you just tell everybody that that's the fashionable, fashion-forward way to speak. And if you don't like it, then you're from the Stone Age. And if you don't (laughs) believe it, call Dr. Fridlin. Exactly. So tell me about these filler words or filler sounds being a superpower. How does that work? I want to get practical for our audience. Okay, well, there's two separate 
things here when we talk about fillers. So let's separate them out because they're very different in how they work and the benefits are different to each of them and the pattern and the purpose. So we have filled pauses on one hand, and those are things like ums and us. Every language has them, so they're not always um and uh in most Germanic originated languages. They are of the form uh and um with slightly different vowels, but in many other languages, they have at least two often more. They might sound a little different, but they function the same way. So for example, in Japanese, you might say ano. In Spanish, you might say esta. Those are all filled pauses and they work the same way. And what they're doing is sort of signaling speech planning or cognition. So they basically come out when we are thinking about what we're going to say and they come out more the harder we're thinking about what we're going to say. So what's interesting is if we look at studies on how they occur, where they tend to occur, We find all people use them to some degree. There are some people that use them more than others, but everybody seems to increase the amount of us and ums that they use when they're doing things like using more difficult vocabulary, using less familiar words or terms, using less common words or terms, using more abstract words or terms, and constructing longer, more syntactically complex sentences. Now, all of these things are actually good things, right? I mean, when we're talking to someone, especially in a business context, what we want is them to be doing harder things. We want them to be using the language of the field. We want them to be smart in the way they phrase things. And we also don't want very simple, basic sentences. We want them to construct sentences that are compelling and interesting and persuasive. So the funny thing about ums and us is that's when they tend to most occur is when they're signaling that speakers are actually doing that kind of thing. So, for example, if I'm talking about transportation, that might not have an uh or um before it. But if I start talking about supply chain logistics, which is a fancy way of talking about transportation, it's more likely to come because I don't use that as often. And I'm doing it in a specific context where it's more appropriate, but maybe less familiar. So the reason we un um is because our brain then has to activate the neural networks to find that word. And if it's a very familiar common word that we use a lot, the activations are sort of thicker, the neural fibers to that pathway are thicker, and they activate more quickly because we use them more often. But when it's something that we don't use very often, it's not that we're dumb or uncertain. It's simply that it takes a little longer to activate those neural pathways. And a lot of times this happens too when words have a lot of competition. So that means, for example, if I have a word like candle, there's a lot of words that start with ka. And so when I hear those words, I'm going to activate a bunch of different neural networks for all the words that start with ka. And so it just takes a while to sort of narrow down. So there are all these reasons why we need more time to think. And all they do is signal that we're actually thinking really, really hard. And and the other interesting thing is we're going to be more likely to do that in contexts where we're more likely to talk about abstract things, complex things, or use more technical vocabulary. Where does that happen to be? Work, 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 or school, school. And so we're judging people for doing exactly what we want them to do. Now, that said, of course, you know, if you overuse them, they can be irritating and annoying, and we do seem to perceive them less positively. But what's interesting is the perception of those as a bad speech filler is actually inconsistent with the research that suggests that they actually do very positive things for us as a listener. So this is where we have linguistic benefits and cognitive benefits that are not aligned with our social beliefs about that feature. So do people not like Amina? Absolutely, they don't like them. Generally, do they affect how people perceive you as uncertain and not as a good persuasive speaker? Yes, they do. But 
what they seem to work as is a signal to a listener that whatever follows that uh, or um is going to be harder to process. And this is usually because it's going to be a less familiar word or a more abstract one or new information or less predictable information. What that seems to trigger when a listener hears a uh, or an um is it triggers more neural activity so that they actually process new information more rapidly and better, and they remember it longer when it was preceded by an uh, or an um. So here's a case where there people are actually getting benefits from us umming and uhing before a word in a sentence we're saying, but yet we dislike them, even though they're actually doing some really good things for us. Right. So it seems to be a distraction, but it's really giving us time to process. Would that be a fair way of stating it? Well, except that when we look at studies that put the same silent pause before those words, which would mean time, that it's a time issue, it doesn't work the same way. Or when we fill it with like a cough or some other distractor that takes the same amount of time, that actually makes comprehension worse. If we put a cough in there, it affects comprehension. It seems to break the listener's stream of thought. So it doesn't seem to be about time. What it seems to be is about we recognize as a speaker, because we do it ourselves, that uh and ums are signals of speech processing and that that means the brain is working harder. You're doing more cognitive activity. So for a listener, that means I need to get ready for something that's unexpected, unpredictable or new. And that means I need to devote more attention and more brain resources to unpacking that. So it basically seems to be a signal to the listener to pay closer attention. And by doing that, it helps you with processing. And then when we devote more cognitive resources to processing it, it by default helps us remember it better later. Right, exactly. That passes what I call the grandmother test. Like, does this sound like something my grandmother would say? Yes. Like, if not, don't worry about your ums and ahs unless they're excessive, right? Right. And if we look at studies on how people perceive ums and uhs, it is true that excessive ums and uhs do end up distracting listeners in the sense of their feelings about it, whether it really has a bad effect cognitively is a sort of second question because it does seem to be beneficial in that way. But people don't like them and they may judge you for them. But if you are an interesting speaker and what you say is interesting, so you have good content, we notice that speakers are less likely to notice the uhs and ums. I totally agree. If you have a compelling message, an interesting message, a message that has benefits for your audience, that trumps having issues with your delivery because people are going to listen if you've convinced them that you have something to say or you have that credibility. But I believe that content is more important than technique. The first rule of writing, as Stephen King and others have said, is to have something to say, right? That's always a good starting point. For someone who does not feel confident with their level of vocabulary, what would you say to that person? Would you say, don't worry about it, just get it out the way, or does that even fall under social linguistics? I hear sometimes people say, I want to get better at vocabulary. I always say, read, start reading non-business books. Does vocabulary beyond the business basic, does that matter? Well, that isn't really sort of what the more sociolinguistics in terms of looking at research on that. But my sense would be that obviously all of us can do better by having a richer vocabulary because it helps us be more descriptive about the things that we want to communicate. And so reading is a great way to do that. But I think the other good solution is a lot of times what people want is empathy. And what we want to understand people, we want to feel like they get us. We want to feel like 
we share the same background. And so for non-native speakers that are working on their English, I think some really important things to do is not always be so stiff in their vocabulary. So a lot of times you might have words that you've learned, but they're not the ones that people will actually use. So great ways to do that is actually listen to conversational English context. So that could be things like podcasts, that can be things like some internet sorts of accessible data that you can get on the internet. But it can also be read more informal literature in addition to your more formal, because the words that we read in literature, in fiction books, for example, often are not words that you use in everyday speech. So if you have one with dialogue, that's particularly helpful because generally writers will try to represent in dialogue something that would be more equivalent to what people would say colloquially. But also, you know, I think a great idea is if you can get a partner to help you with your speech, what really is helpful, and people tend not to do this, is to record their speech or, if they can, have another listener, have someone else that's an American or whatever variety of English you're trying to speak, talk to you and record it so that you can look back at what you're doing. Then after you're done, I would suggest talking to the person you were speaking with and say, I just want to know, in your opinion, where was the lack of my vocabulary? Where would it be helpful, you think, for me to improve? And for some people, it's going to be really hard, like, okay, well, this sound is very different in your language, and so it's really hard to understand you when you use that sound. So then they can pinpoint, well, that sound I need work on. Others, it will be, yes, but you used a lot of the same vocabulary. Are the words you were using sounded very bookish? Whatever the advice you get, then the best thing to do is after you get that advice, go watch yourself, go review your recording, because we don't hear ourselves while we're talking. It's too online. We don't process it in the same way. That gives you a moment to then see, well, where in my speech can I actually use that advice? What specifically? And then if you have specifics, specifics are so helpful in helping us guide our speech going forward. Now, I'm a firm believer in that we should all be authentic in our speech. So I don't believe in getting rid of things. You know, if we use like, for example, which is, I think I never finished with that one, but like is a different kind of filler word. So it's not a filled pause. It's a filler word, which comes up for metalinguistic meaning. So it signals things to a listener. But if I'm a natural like user, as long as it's not excessive, as with everything, right? Moderation is key. If I'm excessive in any of these things, it's going to be distracting. But generally speaking, using like, it has very, very powerful reasons and functions. And there's no reason I should eradicate that from my speech. And if I'm a non-native speaker and I want to be more colloquial in my speech or be able to talk to younger speakers, if I'm a younger speaker, like is actually something very, very prevalent in American English. It's on the uptick. And so, for example, one thing you might want to do is instead of saying about as an adverbial approximator, you might use like in those contexts. So you could say he was about 10 if you're talking about someone's age. Instead, you could say, he was like 10. And that gives you a lot more informal air without having that excessive like use, but it makes you come across as a more personable speaker. And in fact, in job interviews, there was a study done where while like as a filler word or a discourse marker was distracting in the job interview part. Really? It did. So if you use too much of it in, in job interviews, it does seem to affect ratings of hireability. And mainly that's because of prejudice we have against the people who use like. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but that is what the findings are. But when the conversation in those job interviews shifted to sort of personal nature things, so like in between some of the questions, people would chat about stuff or talk about what they did on a weekend or ask a personal question, just sort of as an aside in the interview. When people used like in those contexts, they were deemed to be more sociable and personable. 
Oh my God, which is a good quality, a leadership quality. Right? So there are good uses for these. We just have to know what those are. So is my go-to. So what does that tell my audience? Tell me, what's the secret impact that is happening? <laughs> the, the so secret. Well, I love so. So is a very useful word. It does irk people sometimes. I have heard a number of complaints and people, it's like I'm a language doctor. I can't tell you how many people come to me with like, I hate it when people say whatever. And my answer is always like, well, you shouldn't because they're saying it for a reason. So she, her advice is get over it. Folks. <laughs> get over it. Yes. It's really a you problem when you do that. But that said, I do hear about that. And there's different types of so. So let's break it down which one you use. There's sentence initial so where you start sentences with a so. And then there's intensifier so, where you emphasize or boost what you're saying, usually with an adjective, to make it seem like it's a high degree of something. So I was so happy, so good, right? So then those are different. See, I, I use so. Those are different kinds of so. So the first one that starts sentences is called sort of the backstory so. And usually what it means, it's a signal that whatever you're talking about, there is something else you need to fill in for the background for that listener. So if someone asks you a question, you say, well, so I really did appreciate that, but this is because back in the day I did X. What you're doing is you're signaling to that listener that you're going to provide sort of additional background for whatever you were talking about. So it's sort of a backgrounding so. It kind of tells you, okay, I'm going to have a little aside here that's not a direct 100% answer yes or no to the question you asked because there's some important backstory or information. Some additional context. Yes. Okay. I think that's totally positive. It's a contextual signifier, right? The other one is an intensifier. So, and it is probably one of the leading up and coming intensifiers in English. Intensifiers in English have recycled and in all languages, they're one of the most fast changing areas of the language. We have found recycling of intensifiers throughout the history of English. And in fact, so comes from a word swa in Old English, which essentially meant as or as if. And even though it wasn't widely used as an intensifier till about 1900, the first mention of so that we see sort of in critical texts of that so was in 1901 by a writer, Cornelius Stoffel, that talked about how so was sort of a hyperbolic fancy of the ladies. Women use those two a lot, but we actually do, if we look, go back into records dating to the Middle English period, we do find swa used sometimes as an intensifier. It just wasn't the prevalent use at that time. And this seems to be very, very common with intensifiers. They're words that were used for other purposes that signaled a high degree of something. And then eventually the other meaning falls away and the high degree is what remains. And very is a perfect example in Old English. I mean, it, not in Old English. It actually didn't enter the English language till the Middle English. But in Middle English, it actually meant true. The word very meant true. So you find references in early Bible writings that would say something like Jesus was a vrai prophet because it comes from the word vrai, which is French, meaning vrai. Today in French, it's vrai. Right. Oh my gosh. What does vrai mean? Vrai means true. True. And that is what English very originally meant. And in fact, you can see references in 1400 to people that were vrai in word and dead. True wow. in word and deed. That's the Middle English of true and word indeed. But you also find very used in Chaucer to mean to a high degree. It's the less common use, but you find one example in Chaucer where he says he was a very proper fool, which means he was a proper fool to the utmost degree of being so so much so he was true. 
And that's how that meaning falls away. So, so is the same thing, right? Over time, all the other aspects of its meaning have fallen away. So it mainly means intensity or emphasis. And if I'm like so rad or so happy or so mad or so hungry, and then I'm so cranky, (laughs) it just means to a very, very high degree. And when we look at studies of intensifiers, which rapidly change because we want to have new ways of emphasizing things, because when we provide emphasis, we want novelty, we want innovation, we want creativity, we want to stand out. Bingo. So does that because it's not your old really or your old very. And so seems to be one of the most up and coming intensifiers in the English language in this last few decades. Oh my gosh. Is everybody catching that? Like those of us who use so are like the coolest people on the planet. So cool. I mean, so, so, so cool. So cool. (laughs) That's my interpretation of what Valerie just shared with us. So, So unfortunately, we are running out of time. I want to give you this space to tell people, you know, you're getting a drift about what her book is about. It's a fascinating exploration into the development of language. And you don't have to feel bad about your ums and ahs because now you know that they are helping your audience as long as you're not being too generous with them. And that, of course, only the most impressive people use the word so, like I do and you do, hopefully. (laughs) Exactly. So tell us about Like Literally Dude, which... I could not believe you titled that book that way, but it works. So tell the audience a little bit about that and how they can, I mean, of course, it's available at all bookstores. By the time you hear this, it's coming out towards the end of April. And I'll let you have the last word. Oh, sure. Well, like literally, dude, which which (laughs) is, I think, a fun title. I joked with my editor when we chose that title. I, I said, I'm not sure I can say that over and over and over again. Like literally, dude. But it's very much about the way that speech is so much tied to social identity and the way that we're taken, the way we're perceived, and also not just how we're perceived, but how we feel about ourselves and the way that we speak in certain ways using new or old forms because it really emblemizes some aspect of who we see ourselves to be. And words capture emotions and words capture the way we want to be perceived and how the identity we want to project. But Lots of times there's a mismatch between the words that project certain identities when I'm 20 or the words that project certain identities when I'm a woman or the words that present us in a certain way when I'm a 50-year-old white male that is mismatched. And so we have these really strong opinions about what they mean. And we're usually wrong. (laughs) And so the book is just clarifying what is the scientific and empirical evidence that we have about why these features came to be what they're used for, and how they might actually be really socially purposeful and powerful, even if we don't like them. They may be things we don't like, and we don't need to use them, but as speakers that value connection and communication, we should care about them, and we should care about the speakers that use them. So whether you're a parent that is worried about your kid's speech, or you're a non-native speaker that's worried about your own speech, or a business leader that is wondering how to connect to your audience, clients that are millennials or Gen Z, this book clarifies sort of the path of language and where it's going, what all these features mean, and why we use them. Awesome. All right. So Like Literally Dude by Valerie Fridlin. And as always, I will say to you, you're welcome. I know you enjoy getting this amazing content. Now we are all up to date on the latest in language. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedland, for coming on the show. And I'll catch everybody in the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>